Good, good. Will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we come before you as your children today, and we thank you for the love eternal that you have set before us through your Son, Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to your right hand. We thank you that you are the God who listens, the God who is present. And Lord, as we come before your word today, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that you, as we open our, our Bibles, that you would open our hearts, that you would read to us there those things that we need to confess to you, and that you would also help us to see there those aspects of who you are that we need in order to live full and rich lives. And so, Lord, we um, come before you now, and we give you our sins and our failures, our disappointments, all of those negative qualities of our lives, and we thank you for the forgiveness and grace and mercy that are ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, we lift to you those whom we know and love who are sick, and we pray your healing mercies over them. We pray especially for Jim Ulbrich today as he recovers from a stroke. We just pray your healing mercies over him, your peace within him and within the hearts of all who love him. Uh, give them a sense of your strength and presence as they walk through this together. And Lord, we lift to you um, those who grieve. We pray that you would comfort them. We lift before you uh, our leaders in government at every level, elected and appointed. We pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We pray for peace in this world, and we, we recognize to you um, how ridiculous that sounds in human terms, and yet we know that you are the God of peace, and so we call out to you for peace in this world. And Lord, where it is uh, not possible politically, uh, make it so spiritually in our hearts and in the hearts of more and more in this world. And Lord, we lift to you our men and women in uniform uh, who are serving this country and who are serving as first responders, and we pray your protection over them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. We lift to you those who've returned home from their service changed as a result of the sacrifices they've made, and we pray your healing over them, mind, body, and soul. Lord, be with us, your church, to minister that healing and grace to them and to so many others. Uh, may your word go forth this morning through the mouths of your people all over the world, and may it not return to you empty. We thank you for the grand family of churches that proclaim uh, your name, and we just pray that you would bless their work uh, in every region of this planet. We pray especially for those churches that we are connected to uh, through our denomination and through our missions giving, and we just pray that you would continue to pour out your spirit in those places as well. 
We ask you would be with us now as we open your word, open our hearts, and speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, up until today, we've been in a series of messages through the Psalms of Ascent. That's Psalm, I don't know, 120 through 121 through 135, somewhere in there. Um, and we got to about halfway, and we realized that Christmas is coming, and that's next month. Um, and there are only a few Sundays between now and the beginning of the season of Advent. And so we're going to, um, we're going to begin in the first Sunday in December uh, an Advent series. I think we're going to call it What to Expect When Expecting Your Messiah. You get the idea, right? <laughs> Um, and so we're going to use that um, as our metaphor for engaging, approaching, and entering into the season of Advent. And that left us with three Sundays before Thanksgiving. And Darden, our, our other pastor, and I were talking, I'm sorry, one of our other pastors. We have four here, two that speak English, two that speak Spanish, and one of the Spanish speakers who kind of speaks English. That's you, Alfredo. Yeah. Um, but where was I? Darden and I were talking about, well, what, what could we do in three Sundays? Like what series, what could be one series in three parts? Hmm, that's mystifying. I can't think of anything that exists as one in three parts. Like couldn't figure out what to do. So we just decided to do a series on the Trinity. Um, and uh, that begins today. That should be up there shortly, um, but we're going to just look for the next three Sundays at scriptures that, that develop the themes of God as Father, of God as Son, and of God as Holy Spirit. And so we begin with God the Father. Where's the one love graphic? There it is. Yeah, so I totally ripped off good old Bob. Because that's a great song. I don't care who you are. That's it's good stuff. Um, and if I was really together, I would have it playing as my walk-up song for this series. But <laughs> I didn't get. I didn't think to do that. Um, and so we're going to begin today by just looking at the concept of God, the Father, in Scripture. Um, we're going to spend most of our time in the parable of the prodigal son, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, and it's important to point a couple things out as, as we begin this, enter into this parable. Um, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who should know better. They should know who God is. They have the scriptures, at least what we call the Old Testament. They've even memorized great portions of the Bible. And the problem was that it got into their he <clears throat> excuse me, into their heads but it never filtered down into their hearts. And so Jesus is trying to convey to them who is God, who this God that you, that you know intellectually, but that you've missed spiritually. Who is he? And what are the attributes of God that you really have missed, that you need, that you need to pick up and develop and cultivate in your own heart? And so he's having these conversations, and he goes into a series of parables about things being lost, lost sheep, lost coins, 
things that were lost, and then the joy when those things were found. And he's trying to reveal to this group of listeners who, who are not really listening, he's trying to convey this concept that God is all about the people who, who don't have it together, the people who aren't in the right place in their life, the people who are outcasts, misfits. Hey, that's us, right? That's who he's talking to. That's who he's talking about. And in the course of this, I just want to read one scripture from the Old Testament. There are actually many scriptures in the Old Testament that echo these words in various ways, in various contexts, but I just want to read to you one of the Psalms. So the reason I'm reading this is just to emphasize that the people who, to whom Jesus was speaking, they knew, these, they knew these things up here, but they never let them dribble down into their hearts. So from Psalm 86, just verse 15, I'm going to read that to you. It's, I read, it's a verse I read to the kids, but here it is all at once. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And somehow the group to whom Jesus is primarily speaking when he, when he gives us the parable of the prodigal son has forgotten that God is love. They have misunderstood the Old Testament to mean that, that God just wants them to obey his word, that he's about obedience and discipline, and they might have been Presbyterians, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, so... Jesus is like, oy vey, you have the word of God. You have the living, eternal word of God in your heads. Could you please just let some of it drip down onto your heart? Let it in. And so this is the parable, one of the parables that Jesus uses to try to convey to his listeners who God the Father truly is. So we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 11 through 24. And uh, if you are, if you know this parable and, and you hate this parable, you hate it because you are the older brother who did everything right, and then your other sibling who, like, was the wild one uh, seems to be the one that your parents gave the most attention to, Right? And we'll see that. I'm going to skip that part of the parable. We're just going to stop at the part, the good part, where God just, where Jesus just reveals again who God is. And then, so, I don't know why I went into that. But you'd be surprised how many people, when I bring up the prodigal son, are like, I hate that parable. Because they're the older brother. And, and they didn't do anything wrong. And then they get, like, shamed at the end of the parable for not celebrating that their punk little brother has come back, right? Um, okay, sorry for that. Um, but that was for the few of you who fall into that category. All right, so Luke chapter 15, I'm going to read, start in verse 11 and read through verse 24. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, of property that is coming to me. 
he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It is at first reading easy to think that this parable is about the younger son. Probably because I I can't speak for you, sometimes I do, but I I can't speak for you in this instance, but I I can relate to that younger son. I I can relate to that that rebellion, that sense of heart that says, I'm going to do this all by myself. You ever had a three-year-old? Two. Two, two. well... Actually, for, for I thought threes were way worse than twos, but that's just me. Maybe I'm crazy. Um, and, uh, and then as they approach kindergarten, you realize, I better teach this kid how to tie their shoe. And, but you're so used to tying it for them that you just do it because that's what you do, and you're in the groove, and you keep... And then at some point, they pull away almost violently, and they say, I'll do it myself. You know, and all of us, I think, have some element or aspect of this younger brother. And so it's easy to relate to the younger brother in the story. And it's easy to think that that's what the story is about. Um, I had a, a seminary professor who <coughs> talked about how important this story is to our understanding of God of who God is. This is really a parable that Jesus is telling us to reveal to us something about the heart of God the Father. And so I want to just sort of move through uh, this this story and look at the components that that speak to the, the nature of God as a Father and what it means 
for us. And I'm going to just start with the first observation that God is way more patient than I ever was as a human father, right? Dad, give me my half of your estate. I'm leaving. Okay. No, 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 no. What are you talking about, kid? What do you, who do you think you are? Like, these are the responses I would have, right? No. Sit down. Grow up. Uh, demonstrate to me that you have some sense of responsibility, and then maybe I'll turn something over to you, but it's not going to be everything. And, and by the way, I don't owe you anything. Um, uh, terrible day in my life. I caught my dad when he was retired reading a book called Die Broke. <laughs> like, Mom, take that away from him. It's from the devil. Um, uh, and uh, so this idea that God would just say, okay, here you go. Knock yourself out. Um, reveals an aspect of the character of God that, that I have not cultivated very well in my own life. Um, and I will warn you if, you, if you ever doubt that God answers prayer, pray for patience or humility, and you will soon be given an answer to your prayer. Um, and so these, these things that we are not naturally good at, God seems to be way beyond us. And he just says to his son, okay, here you go. Um, it should be noted that this is not a model for good parenting. It's a parable to help reveal the nature of God. And so we see in this patient God, that God the Father, his love is patient, and he says to us, go your own way. Go. Go for it. Let me know how that works out for you, little Dr. Phil there. Um, but go your own way. He will let you go. He will let you take off. I've done it. I, I tried to run for God, from, run from God for a period of my life. It's, when you have a God who's omnipresent, it doesn't really make sense to run from God, but I've tried. Um, he will let you go. And he already knows how it will end. Um, you can look at this in terms of the parable, the, the father who does this, he knows what's going to happen. He just lets him go. And he's like, you're going to have, you're going to make a wreck out of your life. I'll be here when you're done. But go. If you got to go, go. And God patiently perfectly, beautifully, lets him go. And each of us, at some point in our lives, whether this is a great dramatic thing or just a small inward thing, we will come to the end of ourselves. And we, there, in that place, we see a model here in this story that we are to repent and to confess 
One, one simple way to look at repentance is that I was going this way on my own, the me way, and I stopped and I turned around and I turned back to the heart of God and I went the other way. That repentance is a turning around. And as, as, a, certain, as a certain Charles might say, I've turned my life around 360 degrees. That's how I did it. Um, if you didn't get that, that was a math joke. So, okay. Um, but we are at some point to come to the end of ourselves, to repent and confess. And you see a beautiful example. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That is a beautiful articulation of repentance. And he decides to turn around and go back to his father. The image of repentance and confession. And so, as we come to the end of ourselves, we repent and we confess and we return in humility. Notice the difference in the son's um, perspective when he's leaving home and when he's coming back. And it's that posture of humility that sets us in the right position to listen to God, to heed his word, to hear his love, to respond to his grace. It's that coming to the end of ourselves, laying down our own desire to do things our way and saying, okay, God, I'm yours. Uh, I, I don't care if I'm hanging off the edge of the cliff of heaven by my fingernail, which is probably where I'll be if you're looking for me there. That's probably where I'll be. Um, but I'm good because from there, I can still see and sense the holy, eternal radiance of God's love. And so there we are, humble, grateful, changed completely, not because of what we have done, but because of who God is. So it is important to remember in this parable, it's about God. And the reason the son knows that he can go home is because he knows his father. He knows the patience, the love, the, the fact that his father loves him and is not going to turn him away. So we see that the father's love is patient, and next we see that the father's love is unrestrained. We look in verse 20. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. There's a lot in that verse. There's a lot in that verse. Let's just try to unpack what's there. 
that when we return to the Father in humility, we can begin to feel his compassion. He sees us. He sees you. That means he knows what you've been through. He knows what you've done, what you haven't done. He knows what, who you are and where you've been, what you've seen. He knows. He sees you. And he says, come home. I forgive you. I love you. I'm never going to turn my heart away from you. Come home. You're forgiven. He sees you, and he loves you. This is the God, the Father, who would send God the Son to the cross for your forgiveness. Did you deserve that? I didn't. And that's what puts us in that posture of humility, that we are one family of God together, inseparable because of his love, not because of what we have done. And so here we are in this state of being loved to the point of death. And this is that place that we feel God's compassion. It's in our humility, but it's in the glory of his love that he would stop at nothing, not even the grave, to bring redemption and forgiveness to our souls. We're to feel his compassion, and we're to watch him run to us. So I'll try to, I'll try to um, put this in, in terms that might be helpful. So a first century uh, Jewish man with an estate, with land, um, he would have had a household of servants and their families all living on his property. And he was to be composed and dignified and together. And one of the components in first century Jewish culture of having it all together was he did not need in any context of his life to ever run it was not necessary. In fact, he would even dress in such a way in these long robes that it would be impossible for him to run while fully clothed. And so here you have this image, and if, if you were a first century person that Jesus was talking to when he first told this parable, this is the thing you would have been most shocked to hear. First, that he gave him half of his inheritance and let him go. That would have been mind-blowing, first of all. Then, upon the return of this punk kid, that the father would run. And everybody listening would have been like, what? Because the dignified thing to do would have been to stand there like a statue and let him keep coming. Let him walk that walk of humility. Let him walk toward you until he's there and he bows down and he asks for forgiveness. But no, the father would have had to gather up his robes to his waist, expose his legs of all things, and then in a very undignified way, he would have began his run to his son. This is your God 
who doesn't care about his own dignity, his own pride, his, how he looks to others. He's running to you because he loves you and he wants you to know that you're forgiven, you're home, you're safe, you're his. And so this is our God, the Father, who runs to us to bring us into his acceptance. That's the embrace. This is, this is truly reckless love in a first century set of images. The Father runs. He doesn't wait for the Son to bow down before him in humility. He already knows. He already knows how much of a shift had to have occurred in that boy's mind for him to come home. And so he gathers up his robes, he runs, and when he gets there, he throws his arms around his son. It's a symbol of total acceptance. And then the probably third most shocking part of the story, he gives him a kiss. I I don't need to unpack the symbolism of a kiss for you, right? But in this situation, that kiss conveys more than just affection. It conveys restoration. You are again my son. I don't care what you're about to say about make me a servant. I'm not worthy to be your son, whatever. And I loved, I do love just a few verses later when the, the son tries to tell the dad just ignores him, turns to his servant and says, go get the fattened calf. Let's have a party. Right? Um, And the father is conveying to the son, you are accepted and you are the object of my affection. You are back in the family. So the father's love is patient. The father's love is unrestrained and even undignified. And the father's love is unconditional. We are to join the family of the undeserving. That is what brings us together, that Jesus did what he did for you. Not because you had done something to deserve it, but for the very opposite reason, because I have done things to, how do you say undeserve? Is that a word? It's a word? My librarian's not confirming or denying. Um, Here we are, in a position of not deserving anything other than expulsion. And God runs to us, embraces us, and places the kiss of his affection upon us. You are loved because of God's grace. And so, you're to give him your sin. You see the, the, the son confessing, repenting before his father. We talked about that earlier. And the father completely ignores him. Um, but to join the family of the undeserving does require that we recognize, in a way, that we are undeserving. or It will, it will evoke that at some point, right? And then we put on his righteousness. Did you see that? The father ignores his, his plea 
to become a servant and says, no, 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 go get the robe and go get the ring. These are more than symbolic. These are the objects of authority, of belonging, of place. We, in Christ, in what Jesus did for us, so he took a sinless life that was his own, and he willingly gave it up on the cross that his death could bring us life. And in so doing, he doesn't just wash us of our sin. He doesn't just take away our unrighteousness. He takes off his robe and he puts it on us. He says, all of what God has bestowed upon me as his son, I give to you. So when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your past, those things that, that beset us, those things that try to define us in negative ways. He looks at your eternal glory, your truth in Christ, that he has redeemed you, he's washed you of all of that, and he's placed the robes of the righteousness of Christ upon you. And then he says, hold out your hand, and he puts on the ring of his authority. You belong to the loving God who created you. You have been redeemed by the blood of his son. You are his forever. We give him our sin, we put on his righteousness, and we join the family of grace. Again, the family of the undeserving. Was I repetitive and redundant in that? Okay. We are called into the celebration of his extravagant love, and we're called to celebrate his redemptive love. The Father calls out the very thing that Jesus is trying to call out and evoke in the, in the ears and the hearts of his listeners, that this is the God who doesn't say, now, line up, behave right, do right, follow the law, and then you can be my child. He says, I, I know, I know your rebellious heart, and I love you anyway. And I have made a way for you to come back to me, for your sins to be forgiven, for your slate to be clean, and for, in fact, the righteousness of my sinless son to be wrapped around you and the sign of his eternal love to be placed upon your hand. This is the God who brings us from death to life, from lost to found. We are in this family of grace. And one of the things that I love about this simple gospel, this truth, this um, forgiveness that we find in Christ, if I can just say this, um, you know, we, had, we, we have a sister church in central Cuba, and, and when I go there, I feel, I feel very distant from their reality. I, I walk into that context knowing that I'm going to fly back home in a few, a few days or weeks, 
and they're still going to be there. And I cannot explain to you the, the level of, I don't know what to call it, people who are, who are living in Cuba live under this oppressive veil that their totalitarian government keeps over them. And it's really hard to describe to a free person, right? Um, but I go there and I feel the difference and I feel so foreign. And, and then I'll hear Pastor Miguel preach a sermon in his church and it's exactly the same thing I would say in my church here. And I'm like, wow, there it is. This equalizing grace of God that transcends culture. It doesn't erase culture, right? Like culture is a beautiful thing. And, and the, the, let me tell you something. The, the people of Cuba, the one thing they do have is culture. And we seem to have lost a lot of that here. Don't, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm as guilty as the next guy. Um, but... The, the food, the music, the life that exists, the f- sense of family, the importance of, of their loved ones seems to be much more true or real or vibrant in that context than it, than it can be here. It, for example, baffles them that my two daughters are living in an apartment together in Arlington, Virginia. And they're just like, how can you let them go? Like, that's, like, keep them at home. Give them a room. Like, let them stay, right? And the, the values are very different. The cultures are very different. But there's this unifying truth of the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we have a God who is a loving Father who runs to us when we don't deserve it, who wraps his arms around us, gives us the kiss of his favor and affection, and dresses us in the robes of his son, the righteousness that we don't deserve, and puts the ring of eternal family on our finger. This is our loving father. This is the first person of the Trinity and the essence of who God is. Will you pray with me? God, our loving father, we thank you for your word that you have called us out of our sin, uh, from the end of ourselves, to come back into your arms, to return home and to find a God who runs to us, who embraces us and kisses us, who clothes us in the righteousness of his Son and places upon our hand the symbol of eternal belonging. Lord, we are part of a family that we do not deserve to be in, and yet we are so grateful. We thank you that your love transcends culture and place and that it transforms hearts from death to life. Lord, help us to live in the truth of your love each and every day and remind us when we need it the most that you are our loving Father that you are with us, that you have transformed us, that you have called us out of our sin and into something far more beautiful and far greater that is eternal and true and that will transform who we are 
now and forever. It is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.